Hello and welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. This is Adam White, and I'm joined as always by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you today? Are you healthy? Uh, you know, unfortunately, that question, which used to be idle, has become very serious. The answer is, thank heavens, yes, as is my family. Uh, but unfortunately, there are many people who may not be so fortunate. Well, let's start with that topic, uh, the, the, the breakout of the coronavirus. We are recording this on Monday, March 9th, uh, after a weekend of several days of escalating reports about exposure in the United States and steps needed to be taken by government or by individuals uh, to, to, to guard against the spread of the virus. Richard, as I thought about our conversation coming up today and watching the news over the weekend, this is one of those places where I'm just very curious to hear a, a libertarian's or classical liberal's view of the proper role of government uh, or governments in combating uh, the spread of a, of a possible pandemic. Um, as a as a non-libertarian conservative, I'm perfectly comfortable with the the government's power to to quarantine, to to force you know to require immunization and so on. Um, but I'm just I'm curious how you see these issues. Unfortunately, this is an issue on which all differences that you see between major political theories tend to banish. Um, when the situation becomes one of clear survival, or at least perceived to be one, uh, the classical liberal maxim that is most relevant is that the health and safety of the public is the supreme good. As is ever, this is something that goes back way to Roman times. And so then the question is, how do you think about it? Well, uh, the legal category that's involved in cases of this sort is commonly called necessity. And necessity basically means that people are either privately or collectively in imminent peril of danger to life or health, death or destruction of property. And the basic maxim everywhere, as far as I can tell, is that the ordinary rules of property rights are always suspended when these kinds of conditions take place. The reason we tend to have property rights is it allows us to order our lives. It turns out that we can get the emergence of competitive markets so that when there are gaps in one place, it could be filled by somebody else. The moment you start having a natural necessity, nobody starts to think about about this is people holding out in funny ways. Uh, what you recognize is that the normal flow of market goods and services are going to be essentially destroyed. It's going to be the case that if somebody happened to have stocked up the day before and somebody else was going to stock up tomorrow and the tragedy hits in between, uh, the capricious difference, which would normally not make the slightest bit of difference of who has wealth and who does not, who has food and who does not, all of these things now become enormous. There are no market corrections. So what you do is you start start to see enormous claims for power by the federal or the state government in order to deal with this. And so to start with the simplest case of a necessity, which is terrific to talk about, but not of monumental proportion, uh, the classic illustration is the boat that's stranded at sea in the middle of a storm, and everybody on that boat will be killed or seriously injured, and the boat itself will be destroyed unless it makes its way to somebody's dock. And the basic answer has always been the dock holder is not allowed to hold mountains to say, well, your life and your boat are worth, uh, say, $5 million. Pay me $2 million and I'll let you land. The property rights are gone. The holdout issue disappears. In fact, if the true owner of the property decides to resist the peaks coming on there, he can be attacked because he no longer has the right to exclude from his own property. Therefore, other people in necessity to save their own lives can move in. Uh, there is a detail, I think that's the correct word to use,
news now about whether compensation is to be paid after the invasion has been made. And to that, the general answer has been, if you can do it, you sort of have to pay not so much rental value, but for destruction. And when you get the public things, uh, there's been a long history uh, that the government has virtually plenty of power to do whatever it will, and that all questions of compensation are off the table. There are just too many people who are going to be affected one way or the other, that to try to work out a system of compensation ex post now becomes a general nightmare. And so what you have to do is to attend to the direct threat that you have to face. And what are the powers that you can start to use? Well, one of the powers is certainly the destruction of property. So the hypothetical that you see in virtually all the old cases is a town like London was burning down. And the question is, if you could stop the fire by burning somebody else's house down, uh, were you entitled to do so? And the answer is, yes, you are entitled to do so. Because if you do not burn down that house, the entire city will be lost. And it's just a matter of caprice. Uh, again, the compensation question is handled, if at all, by private insurance, which generally exempts these things. Uh, so uh, this is just a question of hard luck, uh, because there's no other way that you can kind of work a more just system given what's going on. When you start having pandemics, it gets even worse. The private solution has always been allowed get the hell out of there is what people try to do. The story in the medieval times in England is if there was a plague in London, then the rich would make their way off to Oxford in relative safety. That's still being done today. Um, but the problem is everybody's trying to flee. And when they all flee, they take with them the same viruses they had when they were at home. And so as you get movement by air and by sea and so forth, uh, not only does it uh, not save anybody from the particular viruses, but it spreads it. So you certainly can destroy property. Can you do quarantines? The answer is you certainly can do quarantines under these circumstances for the same logic, which is if it's going to keep people out from killing others, well, uh, you can't expect individual contracts to be negotiated, so you put people literally behind bars. Is this always going to work? Well, sometimes they're fake quarantines. My favorite case is a case called Juho from 1900 in San Francisco, in which this peculiar quarantine insisted that the Chinese not be able to leave the Chinese quarter, but it also allowed white people to go in and out. And so this was not a quarantine. This was a trade restriction and was struck down on those grounds. Nobody's talking trade description in these particular cases. All of these things are bona fide harms, and the hard questions are not legally what you can do. The hard questions are really tactically as to what you want to do. One of the risks you run with a quarantine is if you make the consequences so savage, uh, then people will not self-report, or they will not self-report immediately, they will not seek medical help immediately, and they may only spread the damage further. And so there's a really difficult trade-off as to what sort of quarantines you impose, if they're too stringent, then people are going to stay outside the system and they're going to result in very serious destruction. Uh, can you close down buildings? That's a lot easier than quarantining people. And one starts to see this. It's, by the way, uh, just to start, right now, the closure is not coming from the state. It's coming from private institutions. Stanford, I gather, is closed down. Its operations, Columbia, I think, is closed down. Some of its operations, more public schools are closing things down. These are private responses by parents and by administrators and by employers. Travel is absolutely plummeting and all of these kinds of an arrangement. And so rather than 
then start to talk in some sense about the way in which the state forces this stuff, I think it's extremely important to remember that the private responses have taken place at a tremendous level. You walk through the halls of NYU and there's a parole station on every floor, and I suspect that's true everywhere else. Washing hands for 20 seconds with soap and water has now become de rigueur. Uh, getting rid of anything like loose foods that could possibly spread damages, I think, are taking place. So I think the powers of the government are enormous. What's striking to me about this particular situation is that the private responses have been overwhelmingly proactive under these circumstances as well. And so I don't think there's a serious debate about the scope of government power. I think there is a very difficult debate as to how it is that those powers ought to be exercised. And certainly we cannot every flu season, when it's not the coronavirus, try to go through the kinds of stuff that we have now. And indeed, I don't even know exactly how severe this virus is, which is part of the problem, or to whether or not we ought to move. The one thing I would caution on, and I will end on this note, is what you do when you have a crisis is you solve the crisis. You don't say, aha, now this is a good time to rethink our fundamental social institutions having to do with income inequality or climate change or all the rest of that stuff. When you're faced with the necessity in which life and peril, life and limb are in the in the balance at this point, you focus single-mindedly on the problem in front of you, try to get it solved. And the basic rule is when it is over, then you return to sort of normal property rights. This has always been the situation. I don't believe that we will have a pandemic, anything like what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. I'm certainly praying. I don't think that the world could accept very easily the death of 50 million people. Uh, but this is a very grim situation. There's nothing that a progressive would say that should differ from what I have said, or a classical liberal, or a moderate conservative like yourself, I think on this issue, uh, the only questions that really are open are questions of, of, of technique and judgment. I don't think the question of government force is something that one ought to spend too much time worrying about. Just one other question on this before we move on. Um, mm -hmm. At the beginning, the very beginning of, of your answer, you, you phrase it in terms of clear survival. And I think a lot of our thinking on this, it's as you said, it's there, there's easy parts and there's difficult parts. It's easy once we we sort of assume a genuine p pandemic and a a real threat to human life on a massive scale. Then it's easy for the chips to kind of fall from there. But what do you do in this twilight moment where it's not clear what the risk is. I think we've, we've probably passed that point now. It feels like a long time ago, just a week ago, there seemed to be real debate over what kind of a crisis this would be. And we don't know, I guess, what kind of a crisis will be, but I think it's pretty clear at this point from the from the scientific community that, that this is a real crisis. What do we do in this twilight moment where, say, uh, the government is pushing for emergency responsive measures, or if the government began to push for responsive measures, but a large amount of the public isn't convinced that it's a crisis. Where do you make the, the sort of prudential judgment as to how to decide whether there is, in fact, a crisis? Do we just defer to the government's judgment on this? That's what that, I would be inclined to myself. Or, no, I don't. Or, I, yeah. 
I don't think anybody defers to anybody. I think what you try to do is to get not only government decisions, but to get reliable information from experts on epidemiology and similar subjects and to put that into both public and private hands. Uh, The transition problem, of course, is extremely great because there are two kinds of errors, and both of them are really very, very large. You shut down a system for a virus that turns out to be something of no significance whatsoever, and there are trillions of dollars in waste losses of one kind or another, and the problem probably be some deaths that come from people taking silly apps in order to avoid these kinds of dangers in question. On the other hand, if you lag too much and it turns out this thing gets a head start so that you're always trying to trace it from behind, that too is going to be a danger. And so, Adam, I mean, I think the fundamental tragedy of humanity in a technical term is when you're dealing with an analysis of two kinds of error under uncertainty, you never have a happy choice when both types of errors are extremely large. And we are not even quite sure whether the choice is dichotomous whether it's a this or that, are there many intermediate positions? I myself have relatively little criticism to make of anybody in the public sphere, starting from the president on down, about the way in which this thing is handled. I don't think one ought to get particularly upset about a president for saying, let's just sort of keep this thing in perspective, and I don't think you ought to get expected by other people saying, no, it's much more important. I think that's all part of a kind of a healthy debate. I don't think there's been any sign that anybody in the current government or outside the government from either party or any political disposition has tried to wreck what would be regarded as an appropriate response. And, you know, certainly I'm sitting with email contact the three universities where I have affiliations, Chicago, NYU, and Stanford. You read all those particular publications, and what you do is you say, these are people doing their very best under these circumstances, so I think the most important thing that an outsider like myself can do is to try to prop up the legitimacy of those people who are in the firing lines rather than to sow the kind of doubt which will lead people not to expect what's going on and to create some kind of uneasiness. The single greatest problem that we have from individuals is that if they feel that the cost of bearing a quarantine is too great, they will evade the system and then spread the things further. Um, That's an awfully difficult thing to know how to deal with and you start asking for self-quarantines and so forth and somebody says i don't want to be quarantined in new york i live in san francisco and they get on an airplane and god knows what kind of infections they could create those are the things that i think are really problem there's a common pool problem there's a prisoner's dilemma game here and we know that when you have large numbers of people most of the time these things do not end happily well, let's change gears then. Let's talk about a subject that's uh, somewhat less unhappy. It's certainly not a matter of life and death, although it is extremely consequential from a constitutional standpoint. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case of CELA Law versus uh, CFPB. This is a case challenging the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, the, the single-headed agency, not a multi-member commission like the Federal Trade Commission, but the, uh, the agency created by the Dodd-Frank Act about a decade ago to give one person, uh, the director of the CFPB, extraordinary power to define and punish uh, – uh, um, I'm suddenly blanked on what the term of art was – unfair, deceptive, or, or uh, abusive uh, practices related to consumer financial uh, products. 
Now, I'm no independent. I'm I'm no uh, unbiased spectator here. Long before I was I was in academia, I was on the legal team that filed the original constitutional case against the CFPB in a case called State National Bank versus CFPB. It wound up getting leapfrogged a bit by other cases, including this one. Although not uh, not before we got a, a a ruling from Judge Kavanaugh on a preliminary version of the case back when he was on the D.C. Circuit. This for me, uh, this agency for me has been one of the most uh, profoundly dangerous agencies uh, of the modern era in terms of constitutional structure. So I'm glad the issue is finally before the Supreme Court. I listened to oral argument a couple of times. I wasn't there, but I listened to the audio, and and I, I thought that the justices on both sides were asking all the right questions. And I'm very curious to see how it plays out. Richard, did you uh, follow the arguments at all? I did take a look at the transcript to see the bobbing and the weaving on all of these questions, and I had the same reaction that you had, uh, that this is the kind of case that really preoccupies people, and it's kind of a smorgasbord of constitutional issues. They were talking about things having to do with standing, having things having to do with the comparison of this to other agencies, how you draw the lines, uh, do we really believe in an administrative state at all? So, I mean, there's... There's a tendency in a case like this to go way up. Now, uh, the one thing that immediately struck my attention is that there was no sense of outrage about this particular case on its facts because all that we had here was a request for documents to see whether or not there was some kind of uh, fraud that might have been taking place by the people who were being subjected to these document requests. And, you know, no matter what the structure of an agency is going to be, you're going to have to face uh, that kind of question all the time. The reason why the PHH case was a much more powerful vehicle for raising the challenges is it showed the kinds of dangers that you referred to in your opening remarks. Namely, what you did is you had this company, complicated transitions between different legal regimes. Uh, there was a defense that we've complied with orders, common practices, and so forth. Unimpressed the original examiner who imposed a $5 million fine, which people thought was high. And then it gets into the hands of Richard Cordray, who is the the first director of this operation, and all of a sudden, five becomes $105 million, and people start to raise their eyes. I don't think there were many people who wanted to defend the judgment on substantive grounds, but there was actually, in the court below in PHH, both at the panel and then at the on-bank hearing, a puzzle as to whether or not you even have to reach this issue, because it turns out that if you want to invalidate this particular fine, it may be that you don't have to call the constitutional structure of this thing into question. And so, right. uh, the thing kind of just, I think it sort of disappeared. This case, um, it is simply, a, it looks like an academic exercise rather than an effort of revenge or abuse. So I actually think that this is a much less favorable case for attacking the decision than it was before. Now, what do I think about this? Well, let's start with the first thing. One is, are there independent agencies and do we like them? Well, I, you know, my book is coming out uh, next week on the uh, uh, the dubious morality of the modern administrative state. And uh, so you could certainly put me down as somebody who thinks these structural issues are very dangerous. The way you described it, I think, was even too kind to the PFBB, whatever, Katuma Fraud Protection Bureau, uh, because, <laughs> you, you know, I, I hate these initials, uh, because uh, you didn't even mention the fact that they have 
absolute immunity from any oversight with respect to con- to, f- to appropriations questions, right? They yep. get an automatic draw from the uh, Fed. I don't think you want to put the Fed, which is supposed to do other things, overseeing an agency which it can't oversee. The entire structure of the panels, the veto position of the Secretary of Treasury, there are just so many obnoxious things about the way in which these decisions come uh, that what you really want to say is, I can tolerate abuse A, maybe abuse C, maybe abuse D, but you give me A, B, C, and together, uh, I draw the line. And I don't know whether I draw it at A, A and B, A, B and C, or A and D, but this is clearly on the wrong side of that line. And, you know, I hate writing opinions like that because then you never know what changes you make in order to cut it back. But I think, in effect, that the administrative state is here to say, I think admitted independent agencies actually have a kind of a sensible function. Um, and I think in cases where you don't have independent agencies and you sometimes get uh, kind of, how could I describe them, kangaroo courts when the non-independent agencies like the SEC and so forth start trying people in their own tribunals and not giving them an independent forum. And so I think you're right to be very, very concerned about this one. And I think it just goes way over the top. Uh, and so I'll just give one kind of ironic situation. It goes over the top uh, because you never want to see this much inf- power concentrated in the hands of any individual. But do you cure the problem by simply saying that the president now has the right to remove that chief? I don't think you do. I mean, I think it's better that you I, striking down the statutes, the alternative, and maybe you don't want to do that. I certainly don't want to do it retroactively. But the problem, Adam, and now I'm going to ask you the question, is you put chief number two in there and they have all these powers and all this kind of insulation. You can't replace these guys on a weekly basis. Don't you think that the nature of the structure, even if the guy at the top is subject to removal, is dangerous? Assume that the guy on the top is the close ally and friend of the president who has got an own agenda. Uh, the removal power does doesn't chuck that kind of an abuse. So I actually think you have to strike down this whole operation. I don't know what you think, and I'm not even sure that against your criticism, I will continue to hold that point of view, but at least as of a quarter to 12 on this Monday, March 9th, that seems to be my position. Well, let let me, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to the power of the purse issue and the larger structure in just a second. Before we get to that, let me just say the justiciability issue, you referred to it as an ac- the case as an academic, a somewhat academic flavor to it. And I think Justice Ginsburg might have opened oral arguments with that very question as well. When you have the government and the challenger on, on the same side of the case here, the, the, the Solicitor General's office agreeing with the counsel for SELA law, that there's a constitutional problem here, and that's why they appointed, the court appointed Paul Clement to argue on behalf of the CFPB. Uh, yes, there. I think there are serious questions to be asked about justiciability. I think in the end, the questions are all answered in favor of justiciability. I, I noticed Justice Alito pointed out that that we didn't hear quite, quite the same complaints about the justiciability issue in the Windsor case, where the uh, Justice Department suddenly declined to enforce the Federal Defense of Marriage Act or to, to defend it in court. Um, this occasionally happens. It's a function of the Solicitor General being, or the Justice Department being mostly aligned with Congress when it comes to defending statutes, but but not necessarily so in cases where the President and Congress have a fundamental disagreement about the, the, the limits on executive power. So I do think there is, under the previous precedents, 
there's clear justiciability here, and the court ought to decide the case. I also think that what Noel Francisco said, or C, you know, Solicitor General said, was correct. He said, how could I represent the two of them uh, when the president obviously wants the power of removal and Congress wanted to deny it to him? There's a conflict of interest. And so, you know, you want to go to one of the establishment figures like Paul Clement to argue the case. It seems to me that that's an appropriate accommodation. Uh, so I'm now curious about your substantive views on the question as to whether or not if you give the power of removal, it's going to stop the potential abuses when appointee number two is, in fact, somebody who's really very closely aligned with the president and shares a very aggressive mission with respect to what this board ought to do. Now, setting justiciability aside and looking to the merits of the case and these structural provisions, uh, I agree that there, there remain real problems with leaving this agency susceptible to the president, yet uh, being entitled to its own funding outside of Congress's power of the purse. Now, back when this, when I was involved in litigation against the CFPB a decade ago, but when we were framing up the case and litigating it, I was focused especially, we were all focused especially on the, the power of the purse. In fact, our case really put the power of the purse issue really on par almost with the presidential uh, independence from the president issue. Uh, because giving this agency independence, not just from the president, but from Congress, really did set it uniquely apart from anything else we'd seen. Restoring the president's control over the agency fixes one problem, but it doesn't fix the problem of independence from Congress. And in fact, now you have, in effect, the president wielding a power of the purse if he's given control over the CFPB, uh, yet without the CFPB being accountable to Congress. I'd say approach this one step at a time. If the Congress, if, sorry, if the court decides ultimately the entire statute needs to fall, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Um, but I, I honestly don't know what the right answer is in terms of severability. I, I don't have a good judgment on that yet um, because I don't want. On the other hand, I don't want the severability issue to prevent Congress from striking down at least one unconstitutional provision, namely the independence from the president. Um, but the power of the purse is incredibly, incredibly important. I think it's really been underexamined in administrative law in general. This case has helped, I think, a bit to highlight that. But Congress's power of the purse is a total blind spot in modern administrative law and um, the law around the administrative state. And so it's good that this case, I think, has cast it into stark relief. Yes, as far I mean Go ahead, go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things, for example, is you take the, the problem with respect to the war powers, the relationship of the president to the Congress. And suppose what we did is we found a way that the president could wage war without receiving an appropriation from Congress. Yeah. And I think that everybody understands that this would be extremely scary. And so notwithstanding the enormous difficulties that we have on this whole question of where the power to declare war lies, what counts as a war for which it declared that that power does apply. Uh, everybody thinks that the appropriation powers is an essential check that the Congress has against the president. And I, I cannot conceive of how it is that an arrangement like this can work if you give the president more power, which is not in and of itself a good thing, and then what you do is you take care of the appropriation. So if that's correct, then I think the whole statute has to fall. I think, you could, sever, I think you could sever both of those provisions, right? You could sever out, you could take out the president, the independence from the president and the funding stream and leave the rest of the statute standing. That would be my ideal, would be to cut both of those out. I think the next, uh, I mean, I, I find it hard to imagine the court actually striking down the entire statute. Um, that, might be, that might be 
tied for my, my preferred option or at least my second option. But if that's not a plausible option and if they're not going to strike down the funding statute, which I don't think anybody has asked for uh, a surgical strike against that uh, statute, then I guess I'm left with the least the least bad option, which would be um, or, or sorry, the, the next best option, which would be just severing just Eliminating the agency's independent from independency from the president, and then leaving to future litigation and future legislation this issue of independence from Congress. But I think it remains a very, very serious constitutional issue in and of itself. No, look, I don't think that you know taking the two central design features out of a statute under a severability clause makes it into a beast which nobody has approved of with major transformation. So I have a slightly different variation. I'm frightened to death of an invalidation which says that this thing was void ab initio. Uh, that is, so that every act that was taken under this thing for the past 10 years or so now becomes an action which is essentially have to start over. And so what I would do is I would say, given the fact that we have discretion over the severance issue, I think we also have to have uh, severance over the question of whether or not past acts are still valid. And I would simply say that anything that has been done to completion at this particular point remains on the books, only right. to be challenged in the ordinary ways, but that you can't do new stuff. If Congress thinks that this is important, and I'm sure it does, given the need of de to deal with consumer frauds that everybody kind of acknowledges, then what you do is you patch the statute up going forward. See, the problem is, God knows if you take out these two provisions in this or in some other case, what's going to happen. And also, I think, uh, Adam, if we decide to defer the question of what we do about the appropriations, we may make the problem worse by giving the president too much power over an agency whose bunnies cannot be um, taken away one way or another. And we're going to create uncertainty until several other years pass when the Supreme Court is going to take this one. And so I think it's his best that it be done quickly. Now, there's another wrinkle to all of this, and I wrote about it a little bit for a symposium at SCOTUS blog about two weeks before the case was argued. Um, I wrote about the meaning of the removal statute. The, the, the provision of Dodd-Frank says that the president can remove the CFPB director only for uh, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. And as I point out in, in this, this piece at SCOTUS blog, um, or <laughs> I mean, it might have been at the Yale Journal on Regulation, I can't remember anymore. Um, but in any event, this, this blog post at one of those two places, I wrote that uh, – before the court can strike down the statute as unconstitutional, they probably need to decide what the statute means and what sort of limits it actually puts on the president. It's sort of a quirk of history that that provision and the more general you know, for-cause removal protection statutes, they've never been given an authoritative interpretation in the Supreme Court. It didn't come up in Humphrey's executor because although President Roosevelt had expressed some vague concerns about Humphrey and some vague disagreements, Agreements. When he actually fired Humphrey, he never actually picked a cause for removing Humphrey, and he didn't, he didn't justify it in the Supreme Court in those terms. He just said, I have plenary removal power, and the Supreme Court disagreed. In subsequent cases, we've seen some dicta in both directions. Uh, in the Free Enterprise Fund case, Chief Justice Roberts' majority for, uh, opinion for the majority suggested that those statutes prevent a president from firing an officer over policy disagreement. In Bauscher versus Sinar, where Congress had a removal power, the court constructed the same statute in the op or they interpreted it in the opposite way. They said this would allow removal over policy disagreement, but this was all in dicta. The holdings never went to it. And so I wonder if the court will grapple with the meaning of the statute, 
And then I also wonder, well, could the court just construe the statute as allowing uh, removal over policy disagreements or other kinds of disagreements as long as the president just articulates his reason uh, for removal, unlike FDR and unlike President Eisenhower in the, the Wiener versus United States case. And that might be a good way out of the case, to leave the statute intact, but to eliminate the constitutional problem by restoring to the president the full authority to fire over policy disagreements. Um, it was one thing when you had these statutes a century ago, and they pertained to independent commissions that were seen less as a, an, a replacement for the executive and more as a replacement for courts. Today, yeah. we sort of we sort of chortle at the way that Chief Justice uh, uh, Hughes and or the, or the Hughes Court uh, tried to distinguish the FTC by saying it was quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial, but. In fact, that was a totally plausible distinction at the time. The FTC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, and these other multi-member commissions were created to be replacements for courts more than replacements for the executive. And so the removal statutes made more sense back then. The reason why I've titled my blog post um, Agency Independence, an Answer in Search of a Question, is that we now are discussing independence in an era where effectively Roosevelt won, and we have totally reframed all this administrative power primarily in terms of executive power. And so these old categories make much less sense, but it's worth looking back to the old categories. In a way, that's what I think Kavanaugh was inclined to do in the PHH case, where he said, let's take Humphrey's executor seriously and just preserve agency independence for multi-member quasi-judicial commissions. Well, he certainly said that it was preserving for multi-member commissions, whether or not they were quasi-judicial. True, true. You're right. Is, is that you've got half their functions and half their functions out. Cases like Wiener, where you're trying to figure out how you give various kinds of claims, uh, those are tribunals. Tribunals are actually called for specifically in the Constitution. And I think the difference between them and courts is that they basically do adjudication, but they're ad hoc for a particular problem, and they're only supposed to last for a particular time. And I think, in effect, that it would be a mistake to require all the other paraphernalia associated with Article Three judges to apply in those cases. So I'm comfortable with that. Um, all of these agencies, of course, they do as much by way of executive power as they do by judicial power. Uh, but what I think is wrong with your problem is that uh, it's going to basically create havoc with every other state statute. I think when they start talking about neglect of duty and abuse and stuff like that, what they really do mean is it cannot be done on grounds of policy disagreements, that the whole purpose of a set of independent agencies is that we do not want all this power concentrated in the president. This is a consequence of the fact that two things start to happen. One, you get a huge expansion of the ability of Congress to pass legislation under the Commerce Clause. Then it turns out that you have so much stuff that the Congress can't possibly oversee it, and so you start giving massive delegations to the president, and then what you do is you try to figure out, well, do we want to give it to him? And we say, too much to him. Maybe we could find somebody else so we could divide that power. And we start to create it elsewhere. This is the this is called the topsy-turvy constitution. We are so far from the original structure, and it is so unlikely that we're ever going to go back to that structure. What we do is we make a law of the administrative agencies out of Article 3A of the Constitution, which doesn't say administrative agencies shall hereby be governed by the following rules in their relationship to the Congress, the president, and the courts. Rule number one, make it up. 
Um, I don't see how we can avoid doing all of that, given the fact that we've gone this way. As you know, when I wrote my book on the classical liberal constitution, I started to talk about prescriptive constitutionalism, which is a most annoying topic, because what it says is, you have gone so far down the road with actions which are clearly inconsistent with everything in the original structure, that there is no return, that you must continue to go forward, and then what you have to do is to figure out exactly how you go forward when you can't go back. That is, for example, right now the issue in connection with the many, many attacks on the Electoral College. There's no way we're going back to the Hamilton situation of having these wonderful aristocrats sitting in states debating this particular thing. Either we use pledged electors or we're going to have to go to some kind of popular vote mechanism, but there's no return. And I think that's basically the case that we have here. And so what I would say is all the traditional um, uh, commissions have worked reasonably well with one exception, which is I am very strongly opposed to allowing any judicial function uh, to be overseen by the commissioners who make and enforce the laws. I think you have to separate that out into something that looks like an Article One court. That's fine by me. But for the rest of it, I would say the commission system seems to have worked well enough and that we don't want one rogue legislature on one rogue statute taking the paddle and breaking it. And so I would say under Epstein's um, constitution under Article 3A, well, what happens is that the Kavanaugh position prevails. Namely, what we do is we get a situation in which if you wish to have an independent agency, it must be a multi-party commission. It cannot just be a single person. And I think that that's tenable. It's not perfect. Uh, but when you're dealing with prescription, it's by necessity a very messy situation. And in fact, this is the single most important systematic challenge to originalism, uh, which I don't think it's particularly possible to avoid. I think everybody's in this position. And if you're in this position, then the best thing you could do is to try to think long and hard about the ways in which you try to unscramble or to rescramble. I'm not even sure which this particular omelet. You said early on that, that my proposed solution of construing the statute to avoid the problem would create more uncertainty. I might, I might, I might have misunderstood you, or maybe I'm, I'm being uncharitable here. But, but my view is it actually creates more, it, it creates more certainty. Right now, we have no idea what that statute means anywhere. It's been sort of a line that nobody has wanted to cross, um, precisely because people don't know quite what the boundaries are. I think the Supreme Court giving some guidance in the course of this decision on what those terms mean would be useful for all of those agencies. Everybody would know where things stand, and it might then shed some clarity on the constitutional stakes of having these uh, agencies entrusted with quasi-judicial power at all. Looking at the terms of the statute, I don't find it hard to fit policy disagreement within the the, the removal protections, whether it's a general statute of for-cause removal or removal for good cause, or even at this more specific one of malfeasance, inefficiency, or neglect of duty. I could see policy disagreement fitting into all three of these, most clearly with malfeasance, doing the job poorly. That seems to fit with, with, uh, with policy. Inefficiency, if the president thinks it would be better for an agency with scarce resources to pursue policy A, B, and C rather than policy D, I think that would be a, an appropriate one. And then also just for neglect of duty, I could see it fitting in there. And so I think actually clarifying this statutory issue in the CFPB's case, and if necessary for all similar statutes, I think is actually a step towards clarity and might actually make legislative legislation uh. legislative resolution of the structural issues 
sort of more feasible, not not less feasible, because we'd actually see where everybody stands in terms of presidential authority. Well, I think by the time you're done, it's an at-will dismissal statute, the way in which you're reading it. Yeah, but oh, it, it would be I mean, that's what you're doing because you're saying, well, you know, uh, the PF, you know, whatever, there's a Consumer Fraud Protection Board, PF. Um, this is a body which now is overfining this guy. I think that's massive inefficiency. Yeah. Uh, do you really think, let's suppose you're right about this and Cordray badly misbehaved on that one case and he had otherwise had an admirable record? Um, is that going to be grounds for dismissal? I, I don't think you can do it. And I think what happens is it makes every statute an at will statute and it still leaves unaddressed the problem of excessive consequences concentration of power in the hands of the president. So I don't think that that's going to work. I think it's, it's clever, too clever it, by half. I'd say it's not at will because it would it would require the president to jump through the procedural hoop of giving a reason. Uh, but he it, will always have a reason to give. I mean, so. Well, yeah, but 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 FDR didn't give a reason in the letter where he fired Humphrey. Eisenhower. <laughs> well, uh, no, he was still alive when he fired him. I know, but it was a budgetary issue, which I—that's uh, why I was the executive. But what happens is he surely could have given a reason. Yeah. That is, he didn't give a reason because he didn't think he had to. But the moment you change the rule, he'll change the letter. Yeah, but I think um, I think that would be fine. Uh, I, I'm very nervous about all of that. I mean, I'll give you another illustration why what gets me nervous is you recall in the Lucia case, there was a serious issue as to whether or not they had the right appointment strategy with respect to the fellow who really socked it to Mr. Lucia and suspended him from the profession. Well, if the only thing you're doing is an appointment, you figure out who's the appropriate official and you take all the buggy appointments that you had before. And then what you do is you authorize them by the pride of proper official. All these difficulties are now cleansed, but you still have the huge structural problem of people essentially being able to combine in one agency, the adjudicators on the one hand and the prosecutors on the other. And I think that that's just unconstitutional. So I don't want to engage in acts of statutory construction that I think will lead you to really difficult problems when you do this same language over statute after statute over statute. I think there's a serious problem here. You've now persuaded me about the budget. You see how powerful you are, Adam? I try. I, I try. You try. You persuaded me that the appropriations is too important and that, in fact, if you give the president the greater power of removal and keep the budgets independent of Congress, uh, this is a massive switch back to presidential power, which I'm uneasy about. And so I think that the only thing that you can do is to strike this thing down, preserving past decisions that have been made and making in your, as it were, new Constitution Section 3A, a uh, rule which says that we have a very stable norm of term limits multi-party agencies with the president getting to appoint the deciding vote on these particular things. It's not perfect, uh, but it's a lot better than what we see here. And so we're going to draw the line there. And in fact, the reason why I so dislike the panel, the unbanked decision in PHH down below, it was Judge Pollard, I think, who just simply threw up her hands and says, deference, deference everywhere, not a drop to drink. Yeah. And I cannot believe uh, that that level of deference is consistent with any constitutional structure. So what I would do is I would take an established practice and harden it into a constitutional norm. I think we're probably almost out of our time. Well, but on, the, on your last line at oral argument, uh, Justice Kavanaugh pointed out that in a way, that approach of taking an established practice and hardening it into a norm is precisely what the majority did in the Noel Canning case, where you know Scalia wrote for a concurrence saying we ought to use originalism 
to draw clear lines. And the majority opinion by Justice Breyer said, well, we can take these norms and map a set of presumptions on top of it in order to sort of harden the practice into constitutional law. It was very, a very interesting question by Kavanaugh. I actually disagree with what Breyer did. I thought that was Scalia's perhaps one of his very best opinions, unlike his opinion that took place in Zivotofsky, where I think he was much weaker. I mean, there was no established practice with respect to the removal of power, and there were lots of disagreements and lots of textual stuff. And I mean, to think that the only thing that really came out of all of this is that you can't adjourn for three days is, I think, uh, uh, creating a mouse rather than anything seriously. But I think what it does show you is that, you know, trying to re-examine constitutional structure is going to be the major challenge in the years ahead. Well, I, I, I wasn't suggesting that Scalia didn't get the better of the argument. I just thought it was interesting that Kavanaugh thought of that of that example uh, as, as the court having done this thing before. I think I think you're right. I think we are all out of time. I've enjoyed this discussion. There's some issues we, we're going to have to leave on the, on, the, on the the cutting room floor for next time, but I'm also looking forward to circling back when your book comes out. I'm very excited for it, and, and you and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues, including uh, the, the adjudication power within agencies. I, I'm not totally on board with where you are, and I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring those in an upcoming discussion. Okay, I hope we could do it in a couple of weeks. And let's just hope that in the meantime, everybody is healthy, safe, and well. Uh, these are not idle words in very difficult times. No, I agree totally, uh, and I look forward to chatting again next time. As always, thanks to our audience for joining us. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.